Welcome to another edition of Inside the War Room. Ryan Ray here as always. And today we're kind of changing up a little bit, which is part of the reason I started this podcast, which is to be able to have interesting conversations that are outside of uh, what I talk about in other shows. And so um, I'm thrilled to have on the executive the executive director um, of, well, I was going to say Pain USA because I had the website sure. up here, uh, Darren Redman, who's the executive director. Um, Darren, why don't you just pop on and tell us a little bit about the organization and let's get into it. Well, thank you, Ryan. And I'm, I'm very uh, happy to be here with you. Pain was um, founded, it's a nonprofit, founded out of Fresno in 2009 by Flint Anderson. And he's the president and founder and still with us today and doing some great work. He had a decades long addiction to opioids uh, and um, stumbled and, and tried to get better. And when I tell you uh, a struggle, he was forging scripts and doctor shopping and all the stuff you see in the movies that's very, very real. Uh, but it wasn't until 2001 that he uh, got um, clean and sober. So in about 2009, he started to do speaking engagements, talking about his story and try to help some people. And more and more people would come up to him and say, hey, well, what do I do in this situation? I have somebody, what do I do in this situation? Because there's still a taboo, even in 2021, about um, admitting to your friends or your coworkers that somebody is struggling with an addiction. So he started the nonprofit, him and a friend of his, and we've grown exponentially, helped over 6,000 people. Um, and uh, I came on as executive director about a year and a half ago. And our goal is very simple. You have somebody or you have an organization here to help you navigate all of this stuff. Because what do you do, right? You need, you need a gardener. You, you know, look on Google or you ask a friend. How do you ask a friend, oh, by the way, Ryan, it was, it was great watching the Home Run Derby last night. Who do you know to help with an opioid addiction? And so there's a need out there for what we provide. And we can talk about some other stuff later. But that's the genesis of who we are. And uh, very humbly, I, I say, the California State Assembly just gave us recognition as the nonprofit of the year for California, which oh, wow. Congratulations. You know, is pretty nice. Okay, so let's talk about addiction. What, I mean, what is addiction? Um, how do you define it? Um, you know, this is a term that if you think about it, it's, it's just thrown out there and you're mm -hmm. on it. So help me understand when, when, when you say addiction, um, right. what does that mean? And how does a common person like me look for signs of addiction? Or um, maybe we're called addiction, but don't even realize it. Sure. Addiction from this is Darren Redmond's um, definition, and it's a bit nebulous, but you have no control over your compulsion to want to use whatever it is, whether it's drugs, pornography, work addiction, addiction to whatever the case may be, and what's deemed unhealthy. When it controls you, when you are doing an interview with Ryan and the only thing you're thinking about is finishing up so you can go back to whatever it is that you are addicted to. That's a very malleable, but a way that I define addiction to be. No, that's that's helpful and interesting at the same time because it could be that um, you're addicted to your work or something, and you're not, you're not, you know, you're like, oh my gosh, I can just work, 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 work. You think of work as a positive, but all of a sudden the addiction um, is is transform transforms the way that you operate because you can't focus on anything but getting back to where you were. Sure, yeah, absolutely, and there are cases of that. 
um, where you talk to some people and they are working 14 hours a day and they're sacrificing their home life, their children or whatever the case may be, or just a simple fact that um, they have a fear of rejection. And so it's not really that they want to excel at the job and, and maximize the skill sets that they have to to help them get to where they want to be in life. Rather, they are just that work could be forever because they're just afraid of being rejected. Uh, so that is that kind of falls into some of those parameters of I am addicted to mm-hmm. be needed as mm-hmm. opposed to going out there and taking risks. So you mentioned the opioids, and this is kind of a thing that's was really Pre-COVID, kind of a big news story. So I died down some. How do we get to this spot? Is it is, is, it, a, is it a problem with um, big pharma putting out too many drugs? Doctor over, doctors over prescribing people just in a bad spot needing them. What's kind of your read on this? Um, the answer is D. All of the above. You can you can harken back to um, opioids have oh, have always been around. There's always been a problem. Um, again, usually Ryan is injured playing a travel sport. He's 15 years old or he's 25 years old and he is taking a painkiller. We've had that and we've had people on heroin forever, uh, unfortunately. Uh, heroin used to be legal in, in, in the late 1800s. But what really happened in, about, in the early 2000s is Big Pharma came out and said, we have um, the cure-all. We have the magic pill. Uh, we have... Um, this oxycodone and oxycontin and some of these other uh, pharmaceuticals that will make you feel better and you can't be um, addicted to it, which was just a big lie. If you look at some of the research, there was more and more incentives and bonuses to get doctors to prescribe this magic drug. And uh, we know about these people who are famous and sport people who got addicted to this stuff. Because as Flint Anderson, our founder, talks about it, what happens is you start to feel like, I never not want to feel this way again. And then there's this horrific nexus that happens. After a while, it's not that you want to feel that way, but you get so dope sick that when you're coming off of these pills, that you almost just don't want it's not even that you want the high as much as you don't want to be sick. And it is just this horrific uh, dual double punch to the face that causes this addiction. Um, and uh, it is horrible. It is tragic. I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about the fentanyl situation. So you had these pills being prescribed. And then you had people who would do this. They'd, they'd get Doctors would give 30 pills for a, uh, a injury that maybe you should have had five days worth of pills for. Now, what do you do with these extra pills? Well, they start handing them out to their friends because they, they're, even the people that have the best intentions are now saying, hey, this worked for me, I have some leftover. People started selling them. Uh, you have situations, especially on the East Coast, where you had some elderly people driving down Florida to sell these pills. You could sell them, but the people were selling them online. And all you had to do is tell the doctor, I have pain, I need more. So you had this legal, this legal, and I use the air quotes, drug pushes out there. And now these people are hooked. And now what? Well, you know, I, I no longer get the prescription. I'm going to go do some other things. And then they, they, you'd be amazed, but they go to things that end up with methadone and, and uh, heroin. 
and, and now, you know, Janie bar the door. And that dovetails, unfortunately, into the press pills and some of this other stuff that's going on in society today. And we have the unfortunate incidents that we have right now. Okay, let's talk about that mentality. So the, the closest thing I would think of uh, to that you're kind of dreading it is I, I used to dip tobacco. And, you know, we're through quitting a couple times. But every time you think about it, you, you think about, oh, man, it's going to be hard to sleep for a while. Or what am I going to do when I'm doing this? Or it's, it's weird. The brain thinking mm-hmm. of quitting starts to tell you this is what you're going to do. This is what I'm going to sure. do. If I want to if you want to get off this substance, I can't imagine on something um, like a prescription pill or something hard, hard drugs, how much this, this, the, the, the psychology behind it is because it's got to be um, a tough situation. And I've often wondered, and this is just for the layman's no experience, would it be better to try to take these people who are trying to transition off and almost take them um, to a, a remote area <laughs> so that they can't, they have to kind of go through the detox process or is detox not the way? Because I know there's other, uh, was it, mel- um, what's the drug that they'll give them to, uh, that, that kind of replaces the high? Um, oh, gosh. Suboxone? Um, I thought it was the M. Um, maybe it is Suboxone. Anyway, methadone? Yeah, methadone. Um, and so what are your thoughts on that? Because I, 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 can't, I can't imagine this if you're addicted to uh, something like Oxycontin just the brain the kind of pressure it puts on you when you think about quitting. Right. Well, well, again, part of this problem that we have started with the fact that it was supposedly the magic pill and there was no side effects. Um, and the truth is we need th- this sort of a, a duality here for the people that started their journey in addiction through um, physicians. And again, I'm not blaming phys- all physicians, of course, Here's what has to happen. Instead of giving Ryan 30 days worth of supply, we have to say, Ryan, here's three days worth of supply. And then you come back and I'm sorry, it might be inconvenient, but you come back and let's reassess and go from there. Instead, we have this culture in America that says, finish all of your medicine. Or we want to help people. Uh, you know what? Your, your, your copay is so expensive. They're just going to give you a prescription for this anyway. I have it. Here you go. Now, how you get off of it, unfortunately, takes a lot of time. You have to go through hell for a while sometimes, but it's worth it. And, uh, you know, people can't, unfortunately, be unless they're going to T-Docs facilities, um, they can't just stop what they're doing. And there's ways of, of outpatient to try to get people to detox through outpatient work so you still go back to work. And then there's people that are going to need detox. But surrounding yourself with people that are going to say and try to regulate you that say, listen, are you, is this really painful? Or Because after three or four days, five days, you can become dependent already. This stuff is so powerful. Now, that doesn't make you an addict, but it makes you dependent upon the pain relief or you're wanting not to feel sick. And uh, that really starts to blur the line. So how effective is this the pure cabin in the woods 
with right people there with the obviously so just for people listening when ryan is speaking here ryan is just asking questions so this no, is i love it this is the way we learn right yeah right exactly so cabin in the woods you and you know your doctor and a few friends go out there and we're gonna just take you out there you can't leave the cabin for 30 days like is, is that a more effective strategy for some people or most people just because you can't access it it's not there um and you completely detox it or do the numbers say that no, it doesn't really matter. The partial, de- not the partial detox, but the kind of detoxing in the work environment works as well. It, does, is there any kind of magic bullet, if you will? Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you this. Recent numbers tell us that to try to detox the first time is only successful 7% of the time. Now, they won't tell you this when they're trying to sell you 30-day detox for $40,000 and you get to ride a pony on the beach. <laughs> Yes, the old school way works brilliantly many times where you just sweat it out and, and I've, I've dealt with that. But there are times where a person needs a, a real detox facility. And by the way, you need to be very cautious about where you go. Because if you ever seen a movie called Body Brokers by John Schwab, which is out right, Schwab, which is out right now, it talks about the, the, the money that is made in these facilities. Like I'll give you a great example. Did you know that somebody drug tests you at, a, at a, say, a detox facility or an IOP? Um, they can charge your insurance company anywhere between $600 and $2,000 for that drug test. Really? 100%. Yeah. So I'm testing you, Ryan, because I want to make, I'm going to test you three times this week because I want to make sure that you're healthy. Or do I want to make $6,000 off of you times the 30 people I have in my facility? Right. right. With the understanding there are wonderful detox facilities that do marvelous work and save people's lives. But much like anything else, we need to investigate, need to ask questions. You need to just don't go on blind faith. And yes, to your point, a lot of times the cabin in the woods works wonderfully. Yeah. yeah well, it's. It, I think a couple things with the cabin in the wood thing that – First off, if you do kind of go through the exercise, it would seem that you're uh, you are kind of committed, you know, because there is yes. you're going out there with people who will not who refuse to give you the drugs. You can't access them anywhere. Uh, you're kind of stuck, and so there's that. The other thing is, I mean, this is something that I'm curious about as well. Um, I've heard my whole life, which is, you know, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Um, is that the same for opioids and drugs in general? That once you're kind of an addict, you're always an addict, or if you really do detox out, that you can. Uh, take responsibility in the future? Let me put it this way uh, and um, give you, if you need me some latitude here. Have you ever walked into a store and turned down an aisle, say a, uh, say a supermarket, and turned down an aisle and caught a whiff of something or something that, that appealed to you as a kid, whether it was a cereal box or, th- or milk or whatever the case may be? Well, imagine that literally on steroids when you are coming off of being an addict. Mm. You have that feeling, that sensation from a box of cereal you had when you were seven years old. Mm. I'm a big advocate that stay away. Now, there are people I've done it and I'm okay and probably best served just to kind of do other things. And what we do here at Pain is we're not into... Um, temperance, where we where, meaning you don't do anything, meaning alcohol. And we tell people, uh, even if the person is an addict for opioids or 
or for, for cocaine, uh, try not to put any alcohol around them, but that doesn't mean that you and I can't go out and have a, have a glass of wine, or with me, it's whiskey and a cigar. But um, yeah, it's best served to kind of stay away from those things. That's what makes, by the way, alcohol rehabilitation so tough. Because you're not, you and I are not going to finish this podcast and go out and see a bunch of opioid places up and down the street. We're not going to see cocaine factories, but we're certainly going to see a lot of beer, wine, and alcohol, or even, uh, you know, cigarettes. That's what makes those kind of, especially alcohol addiction, so tough. How much through this process is uh, acknowledging the addiction? And I don't know if this is the right term. Is, it, is acknowledging the addiction as a failure, as a reality? Um, how much does that tie into post-detox success? Because I can see a scenario where someone goes, they detox, um, and then they're struggling, as you say, on the on all three, there's the whiskey or whatever. Um, but maybe not having the mentality that they did fall for it once uh, in the right mental state might make them more prone to fall for it again. Right. Well, a couple of things with that. That's a, gr- that's a great point, we here at Pain, we, we have, and again, we just advocate, we, we advocate this. There's a difference between a setback and a relapse. Why? Because we're humans. And it happens, and it's unfortunate, and we're not condoning or not condoning. We, tr- we choose to meet people where they are. But if you went and you fought the good fight, let's talk about the cabin in Texas that we were talking about earlier. And you're out there and you're sweating it out, and uh, whether it's alcohol or whether it's opiates, um, and something happens, you have a life event, and nobody's saying that you should go back to that stuff, but you did. You found a pill on the floor that was yours, and you looked at it as a, you looked at it as a sign, and you took it, and you immediately, you know, the next day called up your friend Ryan and go, Ryan, I screwed up. That's not. That does not throw all the good work that you did out. And right. shame on the family, shame on the, on, the, on the company, shame on the sibling that would call you a failure for that. No, you fessed up. The problem comes is, well, I got away with it. Uh, let me do it again. Now that's something different. So we're right. trying to explain the difference. So, so there are people that are into I've been sober X number of days, and that's great if it works for them. But mm-hmm. our belief is long-term goals beat short-term gains. Mm-hmm. And you know, just because you had a setback doesn't mean you failed. Mm. Yeah, it's so that that long term goal meets short term games. One thing I've kind of been a more of a believer in over the years is this idea from the movie Patriot: Aim small, miss small. Oh, I love that movie, by the way. Yeah, it's a good movie, great movie. And so, you know, he's telling his sons: Aim small, miss small. And I remember hearing that when I was a came out in high school, I think, and I was kind of like, oh, that's kind of a silly saying. But the longer I've lived, which I'm still still relatively young, uh, but the longer I've lived, aim small, miss small, there's a lot of wisdom in there. And so so how does that apply to something like this? Because, you know, to your point, if I just take that analogy, which is, you know, Bob wakes up, um, his his goals to get to the day or or long-term goals to do this, whatever, uh, then he fails. Um, Well, the aim small, miss small there is, okay, when you have the failure, that's the small miss. Um, so now we got to just recalibrate by talking to you know, whomever it is we talk to about this or, or how the process is. Um, but if you don't have kind of these things categorized right or prioritized right, that's where you can get yourself into trouble. Correct. No, I, yeah, absolutely. And what happens is, and it sounds like a bumper sticker, and sometimes uh, people roll their eyes, but I didn't use yesterday. Mm-hmm. 
and I'm not sure if I'll use tomorrow, but I'm not using right now. Mm. You literally have to look at it that way. So, and if you did use or you, you slipped, that was yesterday. Today, I'm going to try to do what I have to do. And there's so many, so, without getting into too many tangents, but there, there's so many social mores that you need to throw away when you're worried about your addiction and your long-term recovery. So, for example, you know, Ryan, I, I, I think I think it's you really shown your mother disrespect by not going to that wedding party because she, whatever. But no, I can't be around those because a couple of the guys there I used to use with, right. and there's triggers that might provoke me to do something I don't need to do. We have to start being less selfish by being selfish. You have to worry. So, for example, if um, if somebody had a big communicable disease, would you ask them if they to come to the party? Well, so right. you have to look at yourself like, I don't want to put myself in this position. I need to be. And there are some times where you're like, I just need to be by myself. I need to recalibrate. Because think about this. You see it in the movies, and it's so true. And again, Flint talks about this a lot. There is a romance between the addict and the addiction. They have a certain place that they would keep their cocaine. They had a certain bottle or pill pill collector that they would keep their opioids in. They would count it a certain way. I would have it after my coffee and before I did whatever it is I had to do. There is a romance and a dance to that stuff. So you're asking somebody to forever break up with something that has been a part of their life. And those triggers will come in the middle of the night. It'll come in all different ways. So what we need to do is try to teach people and families because addiction is a family disease, meaning everybody's involved. If you have a, a significant other, a sibling, a child that is involved in addiction, it affects you. It's not just them. Yeah, that's that's interesting. So one of the things I thought about, um, you know, big sports fan, it's if the media kind of makes fun of coaches and athletes for we're going to take it one game at a time. You know, we're focused on this. We're not talking about that. And listen, a lot of that is just speech that's not being actually followed. But the good organizations kind of follow those mantras, which is, sure. that, um, you know, you don't, you don't dwell on something for 24 hours. Um, and, and there is a sense in which that's how they have to move, you know, from one step to the next. Because if they get carried away on, you know, what's life going to be like six, you know, six weeks from now? Who am I playing or, or whatever? They get distracted. And so yep. – it sounds like kind of doing this. Have you found that athletes um, are able to navigate the addiction process a little bit better or is it harder on them or any insights on that? I think it's outstanding that you bring up that point because I don't know if there's been any studies that, that, that would bring that up. However, athletes understand the one day at a time process as a former division one softball coach and, and I played college football. That was a mantra that was taught to us because it was very, very true. Uh, you know, next week's opponent might be sitting in a, in, a, in, a, in a cover two. This week's opponent sits in a five two. So I have to focus. And that's what people don't understand when they hear those things. Right. We have to focus on what's in front of us. And and sport people in addiction have a basic premise. So it's an easier premise to teach to sports people than it is for people in the general public. So you're actually right. Yeah, I, I can see that. And I, and I also wonder it might be a strength or weaknesses that, you know, hyper competitive people 
um, if that helps them or if that works against them because of the of the um, the way that sometimes athletes deal with failure is different mm-hmm. than um, the normal person. So any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, and, and again, there's different variables, how they're raised and, and different things and because there's no template, right? And as a person who has a libertarian um, way of looking at life, everybody is a little different. But there are – that's why I always like to use the word – you know, there are no rules as much as there are guidelines. And you so, might start at a premise that says, okay, this is probably happening because this person is an athlete. They may understand this premise. But, for example, if, if, if you were a, a millionaire's son and you never had to deal with any adversity and you ended up addicted to something, that doesn't mean that um, um, it's going to be any easier or harder. It's just going to be different for you than somebody who's had to work through adversity and knows what it's like to be alone. And so you would present your options to that person differently. And you call upon that stuff. Um, so again, somebody that, that doesn't, never really felt um, faced any adversity or ever had to stand on their own, you have to help them understand what that, what that looks like. Somebody who struggled their whole life, like, I have a, a few friends of mine who play, who play pro sports who were never drafted. And the interesting thing is a lot of them actually understood the pro game better when they got there because they had to face more adversity to get where they are. We had a, we had a, um, a conversation with Greg Camarillo, for example. Um, every year he had, a, he had a fight for his job with the San Diego Chargers and the, and the Miami Dolphins. Um, because he, he started as a, as a backup on special teams. Then the person who came in as that number one ranked person, and then uh, really ne- when he faced adversity for the first time, he or she um, didn't really know how to apply to it because their skills and the talents um, got them as far as they got to to begin with. Yeah, yeah, you, you do see that as um, sports that sometimes the guy Tom Brady talked about this the other day. He said, you know, if he was a was it a six round draft pick? He doesn't know if he would have succeeded because he kind of put the chip on the shoulder. He had to study. He had to prove to everyone that he was as good as he thought he was. And um, listen, Peyton Manning is a first round draft pick, so you know it goes it goes a lot of different ways. Um, sure. So it just to your point, um, it's not it's not clear cut, and that's part of this this mystery about addiction and uh, drug use and stuff like this is it's not clear cut, and that's what no. makes it hard and for people to kind of um, understand and get their grasp around it makes it very um, Nebulous things that maybe used earlier, and, and and so let's talk about let's bring it to the family because you mentioned it's a family problem. Um, you know, when we're talking about opioids, are we mainly concerned with this crisis being, you know, um, late late teenagers, early college age students, or is it hitting everyone pretty much equally throughout the age uh, ages? That is an outstanding question. If somebody looks, has to look no further than the recent opioid statistics in California, and they're up online, and you can take a look at them. Did you know that actually the people that get more addicted to opioids are the 60 and over crowd? The younger people come second, you know, the 18 to 35. And here's why. Um, you know, I don't know you. You're a young man, uh, but I'm sure you have people around you. Did I take my cholesterol pill today? Did I take my blood pressure pill today? I'm not sure. So they double up. Well, that happens a lot of times when you're older with the opioid pain prescriptions that you get, again, for all the right reasons, and you double up, or I forgot, or did I take it this morning? I'm not sure. And you take two back to back. 
And what happens is you, you actually enjoy the feeling that you have, and now Janie barred the door. And that happens more than you know. In fact, in California, now if a, a doctor, if you're of a certain age and they feel compelled to do so, will say, right, here is your prescription for this oxycodone. Here is your prescription for Narcan, which is an opioid reversal agent. Now you don't need to you don't need to um, um, cash that in, quote unquote, and get that get the prescription for Narcan. But they do it because so many older people actually overdose, or they become addicted to that stuff because of taking too many pills. And then close behind, by the way, is the young people, and they're dying unfortunately. Uh, because of this fentanyl crisis that is just killing people. Uh, so, yeah, so that's the situation. Yeah, so I want to talk about fentanyl, but you mentioned uh, Narcan. And I, I hadn't heard that term until the George Floyd trial, and that was some discussion about, you know, did they use it, should they have used it, could it have helped, and obviously I'm not asking you to wait on that, but but what is this, and is it as powerful as people make it out to be? Because uh, that was kind of the first time I'd ever really heard it being discussed. Narcan, um, I'll just say it first and work my way back. We here at Payne, Flint Anderson, myself, we believe that Narcan should be in everybody's home. It is a Narcan or Naloxone, which is its um, pharmaceutical name, is an opioid reversal agent. So let me explain to you what that means. It only works on the opioid receptors in your brain. So if a child accidentally gets hold of your Narcan because it looks like an Afrin spray, and uh, they take it, and there's no opioid in the system, it just rolls out. EMTs, they give people Narcan when they come and they have an overdose situation. First thing they do is hit them with the Narcan. So every EMT that, that you ever call your house for an for overdose, now, if you're overdosing on something else, it will just roll out the nose. But it is so powerful because, and this is just my colloquial way of talking about it. So what happens is this. You take an opioid, whether it's fentanyl or, or heroin or oxycodone, you overdose. The opioid receptors in your brain are just fiending on that opioid. Narcan, which is an opioid reversal agent, for lack of a better term, fools the opioid receptors in your brain. So they say, what is this stuff? This looks delicious again, using metaphorically speaking. And for 10 to 15 minutes, it starts to feast on that stuff until it realizes that, no, you just tricked me. I'm going back to what I was. So it creates this window so EMTs can get you and help you live. We've had situations where people are blue and their breathing is shallow and Narcan just brings them back to life. It is, I mean, now, a couple of caveats. There's always a case where you're too far gone. Or unfortunately, what happens sometimes is you administer Narcan to somebody and um, they get up and they're woozy and they say, oh, I'm good. Thanks, man. And then 15 minutes later, they're back in an overdose again because there's still opioids in their system. So we always advocate for you to take them to the hospital anyway. Or, and so all that has to happen is this. Something happens in your house. Grandpa overdoses accidentally on, on, on their legal prescription. A child in your house crushed up some Xanax that was actually filled with fentanyl and uh, overdosed in, while playing Xbox in their room. You hit them with that Narcan. And uh, it, will say, it will 
helped to save their life. You'd be amazed because I have to tell you, when you overdose on fentanyl or car fentanyl, it is probably the most ghastly thing you'll ever witness because what really happens is this, the lungs stop working, basically paralyzing using colloquial terms and you choke to death on your own vomit. Many times eyes wide open and you feel every bit of it. It is a horrible death. We, we're doing a documentary right now called The Don't Hide the Scars Project, where we talk to four mothers who lost their children to accidental overdoses. In one situation, I'll give you the lady's name, Elaine Hudson. She lost her child. He was playing Xbox at night. He thought he was taking a Xanax, but it was really an illegally pressed pill filled with fentanyl. And at two in the morning, his friends noticed that he stopped chatting it up during the, during whatever game he was playing. She goes into his room the next day, you know, breakfast or whatever the case may be. He's dead. Xbox headphones on, eyes rolled back in his head, sitting in his room, 12 feet from her room. And this has happened on numerous occasions. And there's a whole unfortunate people are just turning their heads to the fact that this is happening. So Narcan will bring these people back to life, will give you an opportunity to do that. So as soon as you administer Narcan, you call up 911 and you say, I'm administering Narcan. What did it take? I'm not sure, but I'm giving it anyway. Right. And that will save somebody's life. We have a young lady here at Payne. Her name is Pamela Smith. And she is our operations manager. So when you call our office here, she answers the phone most times. Her child died from an accidental fentanyl overdose because the people that, that one of the reasons, the people that he was with when he had this bad reaction were so afraid to call the cops because somebody was getting in trouble that it took 40 minutes before they decided to get that person some help. You know, it's it's funny. I say funny. It's tragic you bring that up because I, I know someone where uh, I used to live, and it was a group of, uh, I, I would say they're probably 18, 19-year-olds. I can't remember, but somewhere in that age group, and they were out. They were kind of doing drugs, um, and I can't remember what happened. They kind of got sideways, sideways with each other. One of them shot the other one in the mm -hmm. leg, and they, they, they had drugs and all kinds of stuff, and they wouldn't call the cops. Yep. They were afraid of probably the shooting a, hey, but also just the drugs and everything, but everything when they could got you know, interviewed, there was a list of things that they were afraid of. Um, and, and that's the, the tragic thing is you have someone here who might be dying or in this case does die and, and no one notifies because they're afraid of the secondary, um, uh, implications. Yeah. And, and we try to teach people. That's part of what our mission. And we've had uh, the Fresno County DA, Lisa Smith camp on numerous times. We've had Sheriff Mims on as well to say, nobody's getting in trouble. We don't care. When it becomes an emergency situation, we just care about that and just save a life. Don't be so selfish that you let somebody die because you're afraid of getting in trouble because there's a drug paraphernalia or in that case, an accidental shooting. If it was accidental, whatever. Sure. L live first. Yeah, no, it's, it's 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 tragic. You know, one of the things that I was I went I went recently back and watched um, 
uh, some OJ Simpson stuff. And sure. so, and then so I was watching the old, all the old court stuff is on um, YouTube. So I was watching some of the actual trial. I remember some of it, but kind of watching it. And so then I was looking up the various lawyers um, and what they're doing now. And, you know, Robert Shapiro, who is out in California, mm-hmm. his son, uh, turns out, um, died of something very similar. He got addicted to drugs and alcohol, I believe, um, had a few relapses, and ultimately um, you know, died um, of a drug overdose. For, for, um, and just hearing him talk about it and just how hard it was and all the things they went through, it's one of those things that when you talk about, going back to this family thing, the Narcan thing, the planning, the working through, um, it's almost a situation to where in 2021, maybe more families need to be having these discussions ab- ab- about where they're at in life, what's going on, a lot more open honesty, um, and then you know, even a little bit of preparedness in case something does go awry. Oh, absolutely. We kind of step back for a second. So Narcan, so you get that prescription. If you go to your local Walgreens, it's going to be about $130 for the box of Narcan. We here at Peen and other places too, many other places, we give it to you for free. We will literally give it to you for free. So now here are the, here's the, the paradigm that needs to be changed. I'm sorry if I use a word from 10 years ago, but it's important. We, were, we went to a local street festival with the goal of giving away, training people on how to administer 300 boxes of this stuff that is about $130 to get. You'd be amazed at how many people gave us this. Oh, I don't know anybody that takes drugs. Or, oh, I don't hang around those type of people. Or, you're just condoning drug use. No, I'm trying to make people live. And I've mentioned this uh, previously. I had one guy that I could not believe. He said, look me in the eyes. And he goes, oh, I got to carry that around all day. I'm sorry, it's 16 ounces. It's a lot lighter than a coffin. <laughs> no doubt. Yeah, so if if I can share this with you, so I had a situation where I was talking to a a gentleman, first-generation immigrant, wonderful man, and we're working through uh, the language difficulty because my Espanol Paquito, Mm -hmm. and so we're talking about what this is, and I get chills thinking about this, and he's like, no, I have a good boy. He's a good boy, and I'm saying I'm sure he is. Sorry, I have a... I have my phone. Uh, no, I like that. <laughs> well, because we take calls on one of my podcasts, is I have my phone, so I forget. I forget that when it's paired up on here, that people call me. It goes through. So, apologies. Go ahead. No, please. That's a good thing. I, I like the music background. <laughs> so, long story short, he's a he's a good boy, and I'm saying I'm sure he is, but accidents happen. Mm-hmm. So what happened was, I said, just do me a favor. I said, talk to your son, and his son was about 16, and he was maybe 10 feet behind us talking to friends. I said, just ask him. Just ask him, would this be something that he would understand or he'd need or want? Mm-hmm. And I got to give this father credit. He went to his son, and his father came, and him and his son came back. And his son said, can I get some? I need this. Wow. And the father, holding his son's shoulders over his head, mouthed to me, thank you. That's what it's about. Yeah, no, it, it, it's um, and just to make sure we're clear before we move off of the Narcan to make sure that I understand correctly and the listeners do. It's not a life saver. It's a life extender. Right? Yes, it gives you a window of time to get the uh, 
medical attention that you're going to need. Yeah. And so a couple of things there um, just for just get your opinion on because, sure. again, the George Floyd trial, they're, they're talking about this a lot. I'm like, what is this stuff? So I, I watched a little bit, one, a couple of things. So um, if you're using it at your house, obviously that's one scenario. Um, but there was a question that was asked to someone that, you know, uh, to the EMT, I believe it was, that, you know, do you use this and people become violent? So just curious if you're out in the street and you're carrying. Oh, oh that's a great question. And it's true. It's part of my training, tra- part of the, my training, Flint's training. You know, he put this all together for us. Is that? Yeah. The answer is yes. There's four things that will happen. One, we talked about you and I. Hey, I feel great. Thank you so much. You know, I appreciate it. I must have had some bad stuff. Let's just sit on the couch and and, and whatever. Talk about mm. it. Get a pizza. Mm. That happens very rarely, but it does happen. A lot of other times what happens is they're afraid. And they literally are just crumpled up in a ball. And you have to just reassure those people. I want you to think about this. I don't want you to answer this question, but if you were ever drunk or high or whatever the case may be, imagine immediately going into detox because that's what happens. The brakes go on. Then there's two other things that sometimes happen. One, they get up and, you know, the fight and flight response that we learned about in school, mm-hmm. they run. They fight. <laughs> They're yeah. afraid. They yeah. don't know why. It's just something feels weird. I'm getting out. I got to run out of my own skin. So you got to hold them down. Lastly, 100% very accurate. They'll fight. Uh-huh. Now, th- that doesn't mean they get up and get in boxing stance and whatever. Sure. They're thrashing around. They're angry because they were high. And then the brain goes, what the heck just happened? And so if it's not flight, it's fine. So, yeah, that's very real. Mm, interesting. Okay. All right. Let's um, talk a little bit about fentanyl here before we... How about your podcast, um, and then we'll wrap it up. So, fentanyl, term gets a lot. What is it? Why it's so important? Fentanyl, fentanyl, and, and a lot of it has originated through China and come up, come up uh, in, in different ways through the southern border and through through the ports. Is a synthetic opioid that is cheaply made and is horrifically deadly. Fentanyl is what's used right now by medical professionals when you have surgery or post-surgery. So there's a legitimate, real reason for fentanyl. But what's happening is this, and this is very, in my opinion, very, very interesting and very deadly. What's happening is instead of getting that Xanax bar, they're now, these drug dealers are taking this fentanyl and they are incorporating it into these press pills, these M30 pills, fentanyl, I mean, uh, Xanax, for example. So what happens is, they have to, they want the intensity. They want you to come back. So when they're making these pills, instead of just some of the baby powder and some of the other garbage they're putting in there, they put in fentanyl. So you got the hot, it's very cheap. It's not really Xanax that they're giving you. They're giving you this buffet of stuff that includes fentanyl. So what happens is these, it takes literally, not figuratively, literally as much of a fentanyl that you can put on the head of a pen can kill you. So what happens is you and I are sharing a Xanax bar. We're sharing a pill. Your side might have very little of any fentanyl in it. My side has all the fentanyl. I die. We had a situation right down here in Visalia where that happened. So fentanyl is even being put in marijuana. Because here, here because, and this is interesting. So 
marijuana is basically legal in California, right? You have these dispensaries. So you have a headache and you whatever. And I'm, I'm, there's very good reasons. I know people that use it. But here's what happens. You are a knucklehead drug dealer up the street. The government is actually taking your business away because the pot that I can get from a distillery, from a dispensary, is potent. So I, I got to up the dirty stuff that I have. I got to up my game. So they're lacing marijuana with fentanyl. So it, it has a bigger kick. Except they don't know what they're doing. They they don't care that they killed Darren or Ryan. Right. They, they, they don't want to kill me, but they don't care if I do. Mm. Okay. Um, that was helpful. Let's see here. Let's see here. Let's podcast. Don't have the cars. I was looking at that. You got a lot of big name guests, which obviously I have some ideas, but talk about the podcast. Well, thank you for that. So a couple of things. We had the idea, Flint actually had the idea of the Don't Hide the Scars podcast previous to the COVID situation. But once we had that COVID situation happen and things got shut down and, and I really feel sorry for your business, what happened there. And um, you couldn't do in-person meetings anymore. So the fact that, that you and I would talk about recovery or we'd talk to parents and there's so much information. For example, two of the four kids that died when we, we talked about this past year, the mothers, they had the, they had the uh, fentanyl lace pills delivered to the person's house at night. And so we have this happening. How do we get this out? We got to tell people through a podcast uh, and they're paying for it in Ven with Venmo. And so they have these apps that people are using and there's code words that they use. So um, anyway, so that was the genesis of, of the discussion. And then we figured out that people want to be entertained. They want to be informed. And, every, and we want to show that addiction and troubles with drinking and, and, and drugs is open to everybody. Everybody knows somebody. So that's why we brought in these different people. And we've had some really big name guests. And um, they, they've come on and they just talk about whatever it is. And we'll sometimes we talk a little bit about recovery. Sometimes we talk a lot about recovery. We have people on, um, unfortunately, like Andrew Pollock, whose daughter was murdered um, in the uh, shootings in Florida, where 16 or 17 um, kids were, were killed. Uh, and we talk, and he, he shared with us on, on the podcast uh, how dirty he felt, and he was proved correct, that the uh, school uh, administration was there. And... Um, a month and a half later, they arrested uh, the, the head of the school system over there because um, the um, security measures that was that were supposedly paid for with public funds were never installed. So we, we kind of open up these gamuts because here's the thing. If you're going through recovery or um, your family is, is, is working through it, you also want to be entertained. You want to be informed. So that's the reason we're doing it. Yeah, that's yeah. Um, that, that makes a lot of sense because it, it, it's a thing where you look at it and you say um, – <laughs> Sometimes just talking about something so heavy constantly is makes things more heavy. And so, um, yes. So to do that is is a, a fantastic idea. And obviously someone who'd been podcasting now for some time, big fan of more podcasts. And that's one thing I always tell people. They're like, oh, man, more podcasts. Like, well, the more the merrier because that brings more people, people that will listen to your show. Uh, will find other shows or vice versa. So it's, it's, it's a good medium. It's allow a lot of voices out there um, and a lot of information I've learned so much i met so many people through podcasting it's unbelievable medium so um we'll make sure we link to that in the show notes but before we let you go 
Uh, give one final plug for anyone out there who wants to know more about the organization. They want to work with you guys. I got, you got a referral program. You got all kinds of stuff going on. Uh, go ahead and hit that pretty hard right now so we don't miss it. I appreciate that. And again, thank you for um, your time today with you. And it's, it's enjoyable. Um, if you want to learn more about what we do, uh, call us 559-579-1551. The phone uh, will ring here at the office or go right to my cell phone. Uh, you can find out more information online at www.gotpainusa.org. Follow us on social media, and uh, we're here to help you. Okay, very good. And um, we will link to the website and any, any other social media stuff we have uh, in the show notes so people can check it out. And again, if there's something that, that's touching you that you know, go ahead and start the process now. Don't wait until it's too late. In the meantime, if it's not, you don't think it is affecting you, it's still something that you need to start, like like the whole Narcan thing. Like now that I'm aware that that exists, it changes how you view things because I had no idea that that was even a viable option. But now knowing it's like, okay, well, how do you get it? Where can you store it? Now you're learning from you that I can ask an expert about it. So that's the process that we all have to do to educate ourselves. So thank you so much uh, for coming on. We really enjoyed it. Thank you so much.